Hello and welcome to Science Off Camera. I'm Dr. Matthew Kozedun from Teledyne Photometrics, part of the Teledyne Imaging Group. In this podcast, I will be speaking with imaging specialists and industry leaders in scientific imaging from around the world about what they do, the advances they have made, and the cool imaging setups they have in their labs. Before we get started, if you're interested in learning more about scientific cameras and comparing technologies, we're currently holding live interactive remote learning sessions at our demo centers around the globe. Book a personalized session with one of our application specialists today on our website, photometrics.com. We also have an exciting new product launching soon, the Kinetics SCMOS, which delivers a frame rate and field of view unmatched by any other SCMOS camera. Book an online demonstration to see how it compares to current camera technologies. Welcome to the podcast. Um, could you introduce yourself and tell me about your path to your current position and your career journey and the kind of things you do now? Yeah, so I am Ratchet Mohindra. I am currently a senior product manager here at Teledyne Photometrics. My, my journey to this position was a little bit unexpected, I should say. I, I went to school for, for electrical engineering. I, I assumed that I would sit in a room you know, in a corner and engineer things. Someone would just say, hey, build this or design this, and I would just do that. And, you know, I had the privilege, I, I don't know what the word is, of graduating right, you know, during the 2008-2009 stock market crash. Entry-level positions were competing with people that had five, ten years of experience. I had been lucky to get an internship here at Photometrics, just uh, an engineering internship where... And we were testing cameras, doing validation, things like that. And it, it, it ended up working out really well because it was a go to school during the day. And because they gave me 24-hour access to the building, I would come into work at 4 or 5 p.m. And, you know, they'd have a task of things and tests for me to run. You know, I'd spend a few hours doing that, head back home. And they'd come in in the morning and they would have effectively, you know, you did this and here are the results. It almost became sort of this 24-hour development cycle. But it was it was definitely a learning experience because, you know, in, in school they teach you theory and how to do things. They don't really tell you specific things like how cameras work and how they should behave. And that was definitely a, a pretty good learning experience. As, as I graduated and was looking at other jobs, what, one of the things that came along uh, was uh, a position at Photometrics where they said, would you like to join the marketing team? And, you know, this was sort of a an unexpected twist because, you know, like, like I said, I would just, I was going to sit and engineer things. I wasn't expecting to be a people person and go talk to customers. And I didn't even know what a product manager was at the time. The person who had offered this to Deepak Sharma, uh, he and I kind of went out. We, you know, o over many days, over many weeks, you know, we'd we'd go grab a bite or or drink here and there, and he was kind of like, "You should really, you should really do this." And you know, it's good for all of these reasons. You know, I, I had a few other offers by this point that I was sort of mulling over, and in the end, I decided, you know what, let's give this a shot. Like I like the the people here. It's a good, a fun environment. It's something new. Why not give it a shot? You know, started out product manager or associate product manager. And from there, it was, you know, a little by little, more and more responsibility <laughs> and along the way, you know, some some mistakes, some pretty decent sized mistakes along the way, trial by fire, if you will, projects that 
probably I should have ended sooner rather than letting them run for as long as I did. But I, I just think over time, you know, it just sort of built up to uh, I was always at the shows. I was always talking to customers. I was working towards these newer cameras that we were developing. Kept going. And, and, and I think sort of the key piece of this along the whole way, y- you always get offers and recruiters calling and kind of seeing, you know, are you interested in going somewhere else? And I, the, the thing that's always kept me here has really been the people. I'm a really big believer in that the people make the place. The example I really give or have given my friends, I should say, is if you're in the best place in the world, wherever that is, and everyone around you is a bit of an ass, you're not really going to enjoy yourself as much as if you were. You could be in the the worst place in the world and everyone's jovial and jolly and fun. The quality of life actually tends to be pretty, tends to be better. I guess if I had to attribute why I have that belief, it probably goes a little bit back to my childhood. Now we're, now we're getting deep. Uh, <laughs> uh, <but laughs> my mother used to work for the Indian government. And so every three years we would move to a different country. And so while I was born in India, I left when I was about two and a half. That sort of began, began this decade of travel around the world and you know so we 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 hit places like norway and sri lanka and singapore uh before i ended up stateside here here in america um with little jaunts over to venezuela at times because that's where that's where my mother was stationed in your formative years you know uh, elementary school primary school to secondary school Every three years, I had to make new friends. I had to find new people to hang out with. I had to learn a new culture and new food. I don't know. Complex is probably too strong of a word, but it, it definitely molds you in a way where you have to kind of be able to fit in, but also understand how the world around you is now different. I missed out on things like childhood friends in sort of the traditional sense. Uh, I didn't grow up in the same neighborhood with the same families down the street going to the same schools. It was, you know, every three years, a pretty, pretty big change. And these were before the days of Facebook. So it wasn't exactly like, oh, you know, let me add you and we'll we'll catch up later. Uh, It was, here's a phone number, might change, who knows. (laughs) I I do think that it gave me a bit of a, a pretty large appreciation for the variety of, you know, differences across the world, a, a lot of appreciation for different sorts of people, things like that. And I, I feel like that's been a pretty key piece for me in general, in terms of being able to interact with people, uh, being able to converse, and I think just appreciate people for who they are and their their differences. What was it like experiencing all these different cultures? Do you feel like it's impacted the way that you go about your job? I think so. It was definitely an experience because looking back at it now as an adult, the, the experiences that I had were pretty unique, right? You, know, you had Norway, a pretty uh, pretty large Scandinavian country, very different from Sri Lanka, which at the time was in the middle of a civil war. You know, there were 6 p.m. curfews and guards about, and me as a kid was just like, hey, cool, this is fun. <laughs> I mean, you, as, as a child, you just don't, you know, you don't pay attention to things like that. The the idea that you couldn't, we couldn't go to the north of the, the country because that's where the rebels were. As a child, you just sort of accept these things. I went from this uh, Scandinavian country to uh, a tropical island in the middle of a civil war to Singapore, which is effectively like, you know, metropolitan island in the southeast of Asia. It's just a... Uh, it's a such a large variation. 
and I, I do think it's affected how I, I deal how I deal with people, e- even as it comes down to sort of regional ways that people people speak. The example that comes to mind is like one one of the companies that we work with, Nikon Instruments. When I'm dealing with someone from our team that's in North America, I call them Nikon. When I'm dealing with someone from our European team, I call them Nikon, just because that's how they pronounce it. And I think it's a little bit of respect to their pronunciation and you know how they do things or say things and communicate, and a bit of me wanting to fit in. If I say things that are familiar to you, I'm more likely or more easily accepted. And how long have you been based in the US since all that moving around? A long time now. I think, if I remember it, I got here... 99 maybe 2000 so 20 20 some years give or take and the majority of that has actually been here in in tucson arizona oddly enough the longest i've lived anywhere ends up being tucson arizona where i came to to go to university you know unexpected but and tucson itself is sort of a middle-sized city a mid-sized city a lot of the a lot of my friends that born and grew up here like i i don't like tucson it's too small i need something bigger and i'm sure that you know everyone that grows up in a city and stays there for most of their life sort of feels that you know some things are good some things are bad but i've also had the the privilege of being able to travel a lot for work not just to europe but asia uh, across uh, north america and and the one thing i've always i'll always say is tucson is a great city to come back to I come in, I land, it's a 20-minute drive home, traffic's never bad. The food here is fantastic. I believe Tucson was the first North American, or at least American, uh, UNESCO city of gastronomy. Over that time, how do you feel like the atmosphere at Photometrics has changed? I really do feel like over the years we've we've really grown up. But I've seen people come and go. I've seen sort of, uh, you know, the engineers that were here before shift into this newer generation of engineers the people here have been and continue to be pretty fantastic and it it comes down to not just being able to connect with them on a personal level that definitely helps right you you can joke around with them you can go hang out with them after work but I, i think the working environment is 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 really amazing just because communication is fantastic if you know, if I go to the engineering team and say, hey, I would re- like this feature, you know, it's sort of within this time frame, they have no hesitancy to politely tell me that is reasonable, that is unreasonable, this is most likely what will happen, or here are the, here are the realistic trade-offs. It, it's nice to be able to get sort of a very reasonable response back because that's what's driving my decision and prioritization as well. Um, there have been times in the past, you know, with with previous people where some of that wasn't as accurate, right? They were trying to prioritize the development in a way that was more conducive to some of the things they wanted to work on. Sometimes the fun thing isn't always the necessary thing. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think that we've really hit a stride over the last five or six years, maybe even a little bit longer, where, you know, it's just, it's been a really really fun run of new products and new development and new technology that gone really well. I, I had one of our our sales managers tell me, uh, it's like, we're, we're doing too many new things too fast. <laughs> uh, you know, and it was... It was nice to hear that, A, because before we'd been really slow and, you know, if I'm being really honest, lagging behind the times in a bit when it came to technology until we we did our new CMOS cameras. 
And then to hear we've done a lot of good things very quickly to follow up that was was a little bit refreshing. Now it was a little bit of a backhanded compliment, but I'll I'll, t- I'll take it for what it, for what it means. So how do you feel it is that Photometrics uh, differentiates from other companies? Because I hear a lot of people describe the same things you've described, whether it's all about the personal touch and it's all about the interpersonal relationships. And do you feel like that's something unique that's baked into the core of it? My whole career has been spent here at Photometrics because I know that a lot of the people that do work here have been here for a really long time. And a lot of people that work here have worked at a lot more places than I have. And the fact that they choose to stay, I think, points towards that. The indications are that Photometrics would be a special place to work. If people that work well together stick around for a long time, other people that you know like that vibe you know, fit in really well. I'm, I'm sure it's a little bit like that in, in, in the Birmingham office with where you are, where just you, you, we've all been together for a while. You all get along really well. You know, what are your thoughts, you know, sort of across the pond, uh, how, how it is over there? It's interesting for me because it's my first role outside of academia. And I've spent most of my career in academia and there's a you know, you also have the same kind of people, but you also have different ways of doing things. And then this, you come across to industry and it, people don't perceive industry very well in academia. It's like, oh, I do the same things as you do, but for profit rather than for science itself. Yep. And you think, oh, no, these people must be soulless monsters. Like they've made this decision. And then I came across and everyone is equally lovely, but there's a lot more camaraderie because in certain parts of academia, you're from, you're encouraged to compete so there's only a mm-hmm. finite source of funding that everyone is applying for in this kind of thing but the whole atmosphere is quite a lot more cooperative in industry which is nice it's quite similar to a teaching role i had uh, in the keel medical school because the teaching role you're not competing for funding you're just you're all working together to make sure everyone walks out with a great education and it's a mm-hmm. similar kind of atmosphere here which is very very nice and very refreshing for me because i really didn't know what to expect and yeah I think from my experience, again, this is my first industrial role. It's been really good for me as well because people are clearly, uh, you know, very happy together in it. Like you say, it's a good job. And because people are nice, it makes the whole atmosphere a lot nicer. When you were looking at, here, I'm flipping the tables on you. When you were looking at moving towards industry, did you have people in academia saying, don't do it? Or were they more supportive or like, yeah, you should give it a shot? Like, is that sort of thought process really widespread? And then what was sort of your support as, as you were making the jump? There are really, there were two fields of thought. There was one where it kind of sees teaching academia and industry as three parallel lines and you can jump between them as and when you like but the higher up you go the less freedom you're going to have to move horizontally so it becomes an issue of oh you you may as well experience everything now while you can and then you'll figure out what you really want to do quite a few people I've spoken to or at least some of my supervisors and professors have had little bits of roles all over the place and then they decided they want to come and do this and then there's another much smaller entity which is oh you're taking time and effort out of research which is really designed to help people 
So mm-hmm. my PhD and some of my postdoctoral work was focused on Parkinson's disease. And there's a little bit of an unspoken question about it. Like, if you're not going to do the research on Parkinson's disease, then it means that research is not being done and potentially it's delaying a treatment or a cure. And, you know, there's an idea of everyone is standing on the shoulders of giants and it's up to you to make sure the next generation has something much more substantial to work from. But mm-hmm. I couldn't get over the idea of if this were more of a concept, people wouldn't have to be constantly fighting for funding just to keep a lab going. Mm-hmm. I've known people who went from a PhD in bone science where they did really good work on how to grow bone in the lab into an academic role. And now they're working with intestine models that they're not very passionate about because that's where the funding was. And mm-hmm. so you get a lot of differing opinions but you simply have to step back and see what your own opinion about it is and i i quite like doing research but i didn't like who i would have to be to continue it long term and then i think industry you know once you get past the whole evil industry thing uh it does help enable science i mean yes you know we're in the end we're a business and do have to make money and it's about the profit but you know we do also choose to work for a company that helps drive some of that scientific discovery. And I do think that industry and the, the the research groups have to work, you know, hand in hand to help build those shoulders for people to stand on. Uh, you know, at least for me personally, it's it, it does help me you know, feel better about what I do. Because, uh, you know, in the end, when I, when I explain it, it is to help further good things as opposed to, to not, I guess, mm. is a simple way of putting it. Especially during the pandemic, Speaking to mm-hmm. people who are using the cameras for COVID research is very reassuring. And the longer I spend here, the less I think of it as three parallel lines. They all do merge together and one can't exist without the other. Someone said mm-hmm. to me, they're all the same thing. They're just upstream or downstream of each other. So the industry is upstream of academia because you can't do the research without the equipment the new therapies or products or solutions and then further down from industry academia is teaching because you need someone to educate the next generation of scientists and they're all interlinked it's not a case of locking yourself out of one yeah absolutely they they have to flow from one to the other the bridge is still there you're not cut off from academia at all right it, it's a job of constantly interacting with people doing research and people that are working towards newer techniques and you know and there might even be overlap with people that use our cameras that are doing parkinson's research and you know should you ever happen to come across that it would make you be more excited about it and and i i think i more appreciate that photometrics has this good balance between you know being an industry uh, company but working very much with researchers so have you developed a business philosophy during your time of photometrics? The, in the 1900s, if you ask people what they would want, they would have said a faster horse, not necessarily a car. At photometrics or, or any technology-based company, any company that has to innovate, there's only so many ideas that people on the inside can come up with. Things that we think are really cool, a customer might, might look at and say, yeah, well, that's just not that useful for me. It really comes down to asking the customers what they like and what they don't like and it's amazing how many similarities you can find between pain points or you know uh, things that work well you know the the business philosophy is 
uh, if you make a product, will it make money? Well, it'll make money if you can find something that makes a bunch of customers' lives better or they get better results or it helps them in a certain way. And if they tell you, you know, if you have a large group of them saying, this sucks, make this better, then it becomes really easy to justify to, you know, the 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 higher ups in the company saying, this is a good business proposition because A, we're, we're fixing a problem for them. And because we're fixing that problem, they'll actually want to buy this product. And then, you know, there you go, guys, here's some profit and here's some money. It all comes down to going out and talking to a customer and seeing what they think. And, you know, we'll, we'll always have the, the customers we're all familiar with and have good relationships with, but it's also um, reaching out to the ones that don't necessarily have as much input and kind of trying to get voice into it as well. And before, the way that I'd kind of been instructed to handle a lot of some of this new product information was actually behind a pretty big veil of secrecy. Don't don't tell the don't tell the salespeople and the applications people what the engineering team is working on because they'll go tell our customers and that'll be bad and the information will leak out. And actually I think the the, the opposite is actually true. It's better to let the salespeople know you know, some of the things we're working on to let the applications people know so that when they're also talking to customers, if a customer says something that sort of aligns, the, the pipeline of information and input from the fr from academia that then flows back towards us is is significantly increased. And that's really what allows us to to do or to make or design products that, that fit a need. How has this whole process and everything you do been affected by the lockdown because it's forced a lot of businesses and industries to change in ways that they weren't maybe willing to change in until they had to. Right when the pandemic was really speeding up, let's say the end of February, early March um, of 2020, I was actually over in, in Europe. And, and my partner at the time, she said uh, she, she's, in, she's a public health and environmental exposure a PhD student, oh, and wow. she, and so she was like, "I don't think this is a good idea for you to be flying in a plane, going overseas, and especially at a time when we didn't know as much about about the the virus." I was like, "It'll it'll be okay," and you know, I was trying to convince her as much as myself. But uh, and it was a trip that spanned uh, France, Germany, and then England as well, where I came came to the office. And right, right when I was there at the office, uh, you know, we all sort of met and said, uh, you know, the lockdown was imminent. We knew that we weren't going to be allowed to go into labs. And I think, you know, that was when we came up with the idea of our um, online web demos. And it was very much a, what is this concept? How can we make it be real? I, I think one of the, the things that we've done quite well or managed to do really well, I should say, is that we, we pivoted very quickly, right? We, we knew it was coming. And so it was a uh, grab a webcam off Amazon while you still can and get a computer up and running and, you know, prove and do some, you know, uh, pilot and beta run throughs. And I think within, within a week or so, we sort we, we had a setup up and running where we could do these demos remotely of our, of our cameras. And I, I think that quick pivot really helped in the long run because, you know, as it became more and more obvious as we, as, as, as the year went along, you know, labs and institutions and, and office buildings were all shut down. Uh, 
So I, I think professionally, you know, I think we pulled that off really well and we managed to pivot, pivot quite easily. For me personally, it was, it was a pretty easy adjustment. It's nice to be in the office, but a lot of what we do can be done over, you know, we use Teams here at work, Microsoft Teams, but, you know, whether it's Discord or Slack or some, te- you know, messaging system and email and phone calls. Uh, I think the one thing that I probably missed the most is what I like to call the hallway conversations. Mm. Just the, the, the communication that's not important enough to call someone or send an email, but information that's always useful when you happen to run into them walking down the hallway. That was probably the piece that I missed the most. So what kind of things do you do outside of work? Do you have any uh, hobbies or interests? The the very traditional sort of, I like to watch movies, uh, bad movies especially. Um, I like to read typical sci-fi fantasy. I read more to escape than I do to, to learn. But one of our one of our old bosses said to me once, you know, uh, I never hire anyone that doesn't read business books. So, you know, I heard that. I was like, ah, well, I, I guess I got to start putting these into the rotation. So for every few of these fiction escape from the real world type of books, I, I try and get one or two of these, you know, business books and just to get different ideas and approaches in. I realize this is probably going to be a big question, but could you give me your top five sci-fi fantasy novels? Top five? Five's a big number when it comes to fantasy novels. Um, there is a, it's called the the Night Angel trilogy by Brent Weeks. That was a that was a pretty good read. So wh- wh- when it comes to like some of the fantasy in the books, I'm I'm less on the Lord of the Rings side and more of the tell me the story. I'm not as interested in the minute details. Uh, the world building is great, but it's a good story that draws me in. Mm. I've just started the Mistborn trilogy. Oh, it's really good i just finished the first book i've just started the second one that that's really really good next up on my list is dune i I grew up reading a lot of isaac asimov Mm. uh his uh robot series things like that Uh, it's just been like over the years uh just when when the books that i read they were either sci-fi fantasy uh and mystery i guess you know pretty big (laughs) grew up on hardy boys uh a lot of (laughs) A lot of a lot of Sherlock Holmes, things like that. One of the things I would like to do one day is maybe write a book. Mm-hmm. I do feel like one of the things I do okay is tell a story. Um, it's it's the approach I use every, you know, whenever I have to put a document together, a presentation. It's just you know what is the story because I, I think there's some research where. Uh, if you give people a bunch of facts, they're less likely to retain it. But if you formulate it in terms of a story with some flow where they can connect the dots, the likelihood of recall goes up significantly. You're absolutely right about the idea of narrative because some presentations I've been to, you can frame scientific ideas, advances and applications historically by this man did this and this lady did this, and they won this Nobel Prize for this, and you have this red line of narrative all the way through to something you're already familiar with, and it gives it such a rich context. Plugging in that background to help with that narrative, it, I don't know, evokes uh, an emotional response in people. And so in, in terms of professionally how we do that, when we do these uh, documents that describe uh, you know, a new product that we're going to, to develop, it really is, you know, here's the problem and this is why we're trying to fix it. And this is what it'll help, why it'll help researchers. And so many of these things are continuations of previous stories as well. 
Because the technology yep. is constantly developing, you're sort of adding on to it as it goes along. No technology discovery these days is without a predecessor to to build upon, hmm. right? You're similar to how you said about research. You know, standing on the shoulders of giants, even even in the the technology and industry and uh, you know engineering side, it's very much the same. Thanks again to my guest. If you like this podcast, please follow Photometrics on social media for more episodes. And check out photometrics.com for the latest in scientific camera technology for life sciences, such as the Kinetics SCMOS camera. We also host episodes that focus more on physical science applications, such as near-infrared, X-ray imaging and spectroscopy, partnering with Teledyne Prints and Instruments. Follow them on social media to see when the next episode is released. See you next time and stay safe.